everyone. It's your favorite polygamy podcaster and public historian, Lindsay Hanson Park here, thanking you for listening to the Year of Polygamy podcast and for supporting the podcast. This series might be coming to a close soon, but I have some amazing projects coming up that will ensure quality educational listening for years to come. If you haven't supported the podcast yet, please consider a donation at yearofpolygamy.com or become a monthly subscriber. Years after the series ends, we hope to maintain this project and keep the content alive and accessible, and your donation will go directly to support those goals. Please consider a donation and consider sharing this podcast with friends or family. The history of Mormon polygamy is pervasive and affects us more than we know. It's important, so important that we continue the conversations had before us and keep the discussion going. Thanks again for being part of that, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And I think that we have saved the very, very best for last because I think we have the most prominent, most prolific, most well-known rock star of Mormon studies that ever was. Uh, Mike Quinn has agreed generously agreed to come on the podcast. So, Mike, hello, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I'm not sure I should say anything after that. It'll all be a letdown. (laughs) I highly, highly doubt it. You've been a hero of mine and so many other people for so long, and I it's just such an honor talking to you today. We've encouraged people to buy your book throughout the entire series, but I think that you have given voice to so many stories and uh, made Mormonism so much more meaningful to so many people, including myself. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Today we want to talk about how the church, the modern LDS church, got to where it is today. And throughout the series, we've covered the entire history of Mormon polygamy up until the fundamentalist standpoint. But I have argued in this podcast that the church is very much influenced by polygamy. A lot of it, the doctrine and policy, I argue, is shaped by our polygamous past. And I was kind of hoping that you could help tell the story of how we got from being a polygamy church to what we consider to be a non-polygamy church. Okay. So if you were to start off, where do you think, we've covered a lot of your research with the post-manifesto marriages, and clearly polygamy did not end in 1890. But if you were to give us a time, an exact time where you think polygamy ended in the LDS church, where would you say that was? Um, 1907. But uh, the problem with that is that even during 90 to 1904, when there were around 250 plural marriages that were performed by authorization of the First Presidency, either directly through letters 
to people like uh, um, George Teasdale, who was the president of the Mexican Mission before the, the war at stake was, was organized in December 1895, or letters to his successor when the stake was formed, Anthony W. Ivins, uh, or verbal uh, authorizations such as George Buchanan gave to um, Matthias F. Cowley. At the same time, those authorizations were occurring either in writing or more often verbally uh, from members of the First Presidency to usually apostles, but sometimes uh, not, not apostles, sometimes patriarchs, sometimes somebody who is allowed to perform a specific um, ordinance. During that 14 years, there were also members of the church who didn't know about those options that were being secretly. I mean, that was the whole point of the secrecy, is that it was not, not supposed to be known. And at the same time that there were these exceptions, that were being allowed for certain individuals. Other individuals were being told, absolutely no, there is no possibility of there being a new plural marriage. And some of these uh, denials of permission were in writing. Others of them were verbal. And so you had uh, some individuals who were being given letters of authorization in a few cases to Canada for their plural marriages, but um, most of those occurred in Mexico, which was far more lenient. It's, it's um, government and also it's, it's uh, uh, police force and judicial force far more lenient than was the case in, in um, Canada. And so very few were given authorizations to go to Canada. Quite a few were given authorizations to go to Mexico. But while that was happening, there were also these people who were being denied this opportunity and were being told by either by President uh, Wilfrey Woodruff himself or by Lorenzo Snow or by Joseph F. Smith during this period of 1890 to 1904. And yet they were hearing rumors that there were people who were entering plural marriage. And this was enormously confusing for members of the church who still believed in polygamy and yet didn't seem to have a, a way of, of entering polygamy that, that was a, a conventional authorized means that they could think of that would be authorized by their asking the president of the church or the counselor or or another general authority such as Francis M. Lyman who always turned people down because he uh, was opposed to the continuation with one or two exceptions. And that was the problem that almost every member of the leadership even if they were generally opposed to plural marriage, made one or two exceptions. And this 
got out. Uh, rumors became uh, published in many cases in the uh, Salt Lake Anti-Mormon Tribune, but also just the word of mouth among members of the church, and in other cases, the pregnancy of women who were not legally married and uh, who were becoming pregnant, in some cases having their children in Utah, in other cases uh, disappearing. Uh, and when they began to show. And so you had devout, devout members who were being denied authorization, and they believed that this was something that they should do. Particularly difficult were cases where the legal wife of the individual who was a monogamous husband was unable to have children after several years of marriage. And both the husband and the legal wife wanted the husband to be able to marry another wife so that uh, he could have children by her. And so in some cases, what, what happened is that uh, men, sometimes with the permission of their legal wives, sometimes not, uh, married under pseudonyms. Legally, with civil license, when I say legally, well, they, they got a, a license, but they got it by fraud. They um, sometimes did it by pseudonym. Uh, in other cases, men who had multiple wives, but whose legal wife died, uh, married a new wife with a civil license, even while they had a polygamous wife, and Technically, um, the marriage was valid in the sense that the woman he was marrying had no other husband, and and he, as a legal widower, had no legal wife. But it, it was it was essentially a polygamous marriage because he already had one or more polygamous wives who were not his legal wives and therefore were not a legal impediment to his marrying with a civil license. And then you had cases where, in some cases, and in one extraordinary case, and uh, it was by permission of the State High Council, the the man uh, who was a member of the High Council asked if it would be all right to give a sham divorce to his first wife so that he could legally marry with a, a civil license, a new wife, and the High Council gave him permission to do so. So you had these these um, subterranean subterfuges of of plural marriage that were going on at the same time of, of these uh, as these secret uh, ecclesiastically approved plural marriages and. And so when general authorities, and often the president of the church himself, was asked, uh, is it all right for a man who uh, whose legal wife has died and has another wife to marry a new wife, he would say, absolutely not. Or is it all right to marry under a pseudonym? Absolutely not. Or is it? Your or permission to marry? Uh, is it all right to give a sham divorce? And 
there's one letter I, I've have from uh, read and take notes taken notes off from from uh, Wilfred Woodruff. He says I don't I've never heard of a sham divorce, and if you try to do this, you're going to end up in the, the state penitentiary. Well, all of these things were going on simultaneously. And so, so it was a very confusing period. And so when you had, and I lead this up to the second manifesto in April 1904, when then president of the church, Joseph F. Smith, repeats to the members of the church the 1890 manifesto and the official statement by Lorenzo Snow in 1900, and then says, there have been no authorized plural marriages since 1890. But then says, and if there are any more plural marriages from this date forward, the person entering into such a marriage and the person performing such a marriage is subject to excommunication. Yet doesn't make anything, doesn't make any statement of punishment about marriages occurring between 1890 and 1904, which he also just said were unauthorized. So you're speaking to this confusing part of of the doc or of the history, and it's clear that it was confusing to so many people. But we know that Joseph F. Smith himself struggles with this sort of these exceptions, right? What to do, and he changes over time. Do we have any indication? as he enters later on into his presidency, how he feels about plural marriage, because we've tried to parse out um, idea, different ideas of what different leaders felt. And it seems clear that for a long time, many of the leaders believed it was the right thing to do, but the reason why they uh, justified not practicing it anymore kind of varied. So where did Joseph F. Smith stand? He is one of the most complex figures. He's the most conflict complex figure in church leadership, and, and particularly as the president of the church, since Joseph Smith, with regard to plural marriage, because he would look a dear friend in the eyes, such as Francis M. Lyman, and say to him, and to others, but to President Lyman in particular, uh, who became president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and that's why I, why I call him president. Um, I have never authorized a plural marriage after 1890. I have never given permission for a plural marriage after 1890. The same kind of thing he said under oath on the witness stand in Washington, D.C., during the Smoot investigation. However... During those years, between 1890 and 1904, when he was solemnly making those kinds of statements to people who he knew were opposed to plural marriage after, men, after the manifesto, he would also say to somebody who came to him, such as Abraham O. Woodruff, uh, an apostle, son of the man who issued the manifesto, he would say, as president of the church, I cannot give you permission to do this, but I won't say don't do it. 
and I say, God bless you. And so then to uh, somebody like uh, um, Seymour B. Young, who's a member of the Council of Seventy, far down the line in leadership, but he's uh, the senior member uh, of the Council of Seventy at that time. They go down to Mexico, and uh, people come to to. Two different couples come to President um, Joseph F. Smith and say that they really, you know, need to have permission to marry, and that uh, Anthony Ivins, the state president, refuses to do so. And so uh, Joseph F. Smith tells Seymour B. Young to perform those marriages, and Seymour B. Young records in his diary that he did and under what circumstances he did. And yet Joseph F. Smith would go back and uh, after those, those, after that visit to Mexico and uh, tell members of the Quorum of the Twelve, not only as counselor, which he was at that time in 1900 when he gave those instructions to Seymour Beyond, but as president of the church he would say, I have not given anyone authorization, and anyone who says that I have is a liar. Well, when you ask what Joseph F. Smith believed, that's a very difficult question, because he kept no diary during that time period, at least none that I know of. And he... Um, from documentary evidence written during that time period, it's very clear that he solemnly told devote, devout and devoted friends and devout members of the church, including apostles, there can be no plural marriages after the manifesto. I have never authorized one. No man has the authority to do it. And during the same year, not always the same week, sometimes not always the same month, but as a member of the presidency, as a counselor, and then as president of the church, he in fact gave those permissions, sometimes indirectly by saying, as president of the church, I cannot give you my permission, but I will not tell you uh, not to do this, and God bless you. And, and sometimes he told people, if you can find a way to marry a plural wife, God bless you. Sorry, I'm going to ask you to speculate for a minute for me, um, which I know historians don't like to do. But I, uh, why would Joseph F. Smith, why would he be so adamant about following the law when you have someone just a few presidents before him, like John Taylor, who is basically this sort of... Uh, anti-government hero. He's on the run. He's basically flipping a bird to the government every chance he gets. He's hiding out in secret, um, saying we are never going to, um, you know, buckle under government pressure. Why would Joseph F. Smith be different? I mean, I, I assume he had the strong conviction that it was restored from God because, I mean, he fought Joseph Smith the third. He fought. I guess he struggled against him for years and years. So clearly he believes this. So why was he so obedient to the law? Because 
he was protecting the church. There were two things he was protecting. He was protecting the church as an institution, including its temples, which uh, was the reason that Wolf Woodruff issued the manifesto when uh, federal officials said that they were going to confiscate all the temples. Uh, And uh, they gave that um, information to the First Presidency uh, at the end of uh, August 1890. And that pushed President uh, Woodruff. That was the last straw because he, above everything else, he valued the temple. But the the church faced total destruction by uh, August 1890 because it was not only the seizure of the temple and the confiscation of of all of its properties and, and monies prior to that, but Congress was preparing during the summer of 1890, both in the House and in the Senate, in two different bills, uh, despite all of the stalling um, procedural thing delays that the allies of the church and the non-Mormon allies were slowing down the process, these two bills in both the Senate and the House were making their way to becoming law. And together, uh, each one made the same provision that any member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was denied all rights of citizenship because they were members of an organized rebellion against federal authority. And so because that was the, those were the stakes that Wilfred Woodruff faced, any time there was a rumor or a disclosure in the in the Salt Lake Tribune about uh, new plural marriages or an uh, accusation by the um, Utah Presbytery, which was the uh, most vigorous proponent of of these these uh, assertions. The friends of the church and as well as the enemies in the church in Washington D.C. Would say would send sometimes word of mouth, uh, other times direct warnings that if this is true, we are going to do everything that we withdrew doing in 1890. And so Joseph F. Smith, just as Lorenzo Snow, inherited that vulnerability from uh, Wilfred Woodruff. It was the vulnerability that drove Wolfwood Woodruff to give the manifesto. It was the same vulnerability that uh, Joseph, that uh, Lorenzo Snow, as president of the church, uh, was doing his best to avoid, and that Joseph F. Smith, during his presidency of the church, did his best to avoid, because there was always this threat that that we will, if you have been deceiving us about plural marriage and you have not been faithful to your promises and if the manifesto is indeed a sham we will confiscate the temples we will pass constitutional amendment to disenfranchise you because you're now a state but we can undo that 
And so there was, the, there were periodic, uh, and these weren't just words. There were periodic proposals in Congress to pass constitutional amendments against plural marriage and against the, the church. So, Joseph F. Smith is faced with two of his highest priorities. One, as the shepherd of the church, to defend the church, to protect it from confiscation, from uh, having its temples seized, and to protect the members of the church from being disenfranchised and losing all rights of citizenship within the United States. That was his one prime priority. His other prime priority was to continue in this indirect and sometimes direct manner of subterranean permission, the principle of plural marriage. And he, and he had both priorities always at the forefront of his consciousness and it's it's the only explanation for this this dichotomy of what he would say to trusted and beloved friends and trusted and beloved associates in the in the uh quorum of the twelve and first presidency um, it it makes it really impossible as long as he lived to his death in November 1918 to really know when he stopped. Telling people, well, if you can find a way, God bless you. And that's why it is so difficult to sort out the this question of authorized versus unauthorized polygamy because you can point to these marriages being performed from 1890 to 1904 and it has become an official position to say yes these were authorized but for um, almost a hundred years the presidency of the church and all of the statements of the church denied that there were official uh, authorized plural marriages after the 1890 manifesto. And so the subterranean double messages from the top after 1890 set the stage for a, a, a movement that uh, eventually coalesced into the fundamentalist movement because they could point to these denials and they in some cases had written evidence in other cases they just had their own verbal experience of of being married with uh, by an apostle uh, often in Salt Lake City and that these marriages uh, in plural marriage occurred among members of the Quorum of the Twelve uh, members of the um, general boards, uh, members of uh, the mission presidents, most of the mission presidents married plural wives after the manifesto. Many, many stake presidents did. 
many bishops did, particularly in uh, Salt Lake and uh, the Wasatch Front. And so where you combine that with denials that were being made and the excommunications that are happening, and people are saying, well, if it was okay up until 1904, despite these emphatic denials, if there really were authorizations up to 1904, and if there were a few author authorized plural marriages between 8, 1904 and April 1904 and April 1906 when Matthias F. Cowley and John W. Taylor were with, uh, dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve for these marriages. If there were still some authorized plural marriages going on, when is it no longer according to God's will? And people in the fundamentalist movement initially believed and told one another that there continued to be an avenue, and that despite the need to protect the church, and despite for Joseph F. Smith's denials to protect the church, that he was privately continuing to sanction these plural marriages in 18, pardon me, in 1909, despite excommunications of prominent m members of the church for entering into them, and after 1910, despite excommunication of the patriarch who had been performing them, uh, notably uh, after, and then after 1918, when his dear friend, or pardon me, after 1914, when his dear friend John W. Woolley for whose marriage in the Salt Lake Temple Joseph F. Smith had had officiated, uh, after his excommunication, the fundamentalists told themselves and told prospective converts to polygamy, it doesn't matter. Those have just been made to protect the church. And those, uh, those um, denials, even those excommunications, are only for public consumption and they weren't wrong necessarily right i mean there's they I weren't mean, necessarily wrong no although i can you know i can also document clearly unauthorized plural marriages that were occurring between 1890 and 1904 not every plural marriage that occurred during that time period had the permission and authorization of of any uh, officer of the church. Some of those were bigamous marriages. We call the we call that John C. Bennetting it. That's that's what you do. You get a John C. Bennett marriage when you do an unauthorized plural marriage. Yeah, but the problem is that because of this the the duplicity, high and low, and the double messages and the contrary messages, high and low that were occurring from Canada to Utah to Mexico about the continuation of plural marriage after, or the discontinuation, however you want to define it, of plural marriage after September 1890, because of those contradictory messages and those contradictory realities, um, that established a... Um, 
and during the Vietnam War, it was it was called a a crisis of confidence, or a um, no, that wasn't the word. It was another phrase. I'm trying to remember the phrase during the Vietnam War, uh, but it was that the messages had become so contradictory that people had difficulty believing anything the President of the United States said. And that same kind of 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 dis- disassociation of belief and practice uh, in, occurred from 1890 to 1904, it occurred from 1904 to 1906, it occurred from 1904 to, or pardon me, 1906 to major excommunications that were occurring in 1909 and 1910. And, um, and because of that, the the people who eventually formed what they themselves acknowledged was a schismatic movement against Joseph F. Smith's successor, for whom there was no double message. There was no double message on the part of Heber J. Grant. It was absolutely not. And he was utterly inflexible on that issue. And and so facing the clear uh, slamming door, slamming shut of the of the the gate or the wall or the door, however you want to define it, on on first presidency authorizations of plural marriage, and the absolute sincerity of the leaders of the church every time they excommunicated somebody from 1918 onward. Um, then those who wanted to continue plural marriage after 18, 1918 were faced with the having to acknowledge that they were in direct defiance of the prophet, seer, and revelator. There was no uh, disguising that rebellion. And eventually they acknowledged themselves as rebels. And eventually they... They began uh, moving beyond simply the performance of plural marriages, but they also began performing ordinances, uh, ordinations, their own ordinations, began meeting uh, in sacrament meetings and Sunday school meetings, began forming a, a separate church. And eventually building temples like they, they do now. That process took decades. Most of these people who later became identified as fundamentalists did not want to to break with the LDS Church. They wanted to continue to affiliate with the LDS Church and to sustain the president of the church as prophet, seer, and revelator, and to believe that they were um, a a chosen remnant, so to speak who was keeping the principle of plural marriage alive, but they could no longer maintain that, whether you think it of a point of view or whether you regard it as a fiction, they could no longer maintain it after Heber J. Grant became president of the church. And, 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 and eventually that led to this uh, schismatic movement that became uh, uh, 
by its own self-definition, schismatic. But even among people who later identified as, as fundamentalists, that took almost 20 years for that to occur. Right, and we've, we've covered that history. We've covered that history quite in depth, the, the history of the fundamentalist movement and all the different groups and how they've sort of formed out of... But I'm talking about the period from 19, say, 1904 to 19, oh, say, 24. Like the 20s, yeah. Yeah. These people who wanted to continue plural marriage also wanted to continue as pres- as members of the church. And for a period of time, they thought they could do it. And then, by the 1920s, they had to admit that they could not, and that they were in clear violation of the the rules and regulations that were being demanded by the all the leaders of the church. And uh, and so eventually, they increasingly moved more and more distant. They became harsher in their criticism of Heber J. Grant in particular and and eventually saw him as an antichrist as a fulfillment of, of an alleged prophecy that that the seventh president of the church would lead the church into ruin spiritually to a Babylon but that was a very long process for that for these people who wanted to maintain plural marriage to define themselves that way it took it took 20 years yeah i appreciate you bringing that up because um in some ways some of the groups still believe that the lds church has some good truth claims but they're not living the higher law yeah and and some deep and and this is true particularly among independent fundamentalists but when I interviewed Owen uh, Allred back in 1989 and 90, who was the president of the uh, Apostolic United Brethren, or the Allred Group as it's called, he very emphatically said he believed that uh, the president of the, of the LDS Church was the prophet Syrian Revelator, and that the LDS Church was true. And uh, he he just felt that he and his people had the responsibility to maintain the principle of plural marriage and were doing it as they needed to. Uh, and yet they they still honored the LDS Church as God's church, even though they felt it had strayed. Other fundamentalists grant. rejected that and eventually. Um, claimed that the LDS Church was utterly corrupt and that the uh, had no priesthood and that the president of the LDS Church was was a false prophet. But uh, I think that's a min- minority view, even today among fundamentalists, that that um, most fundamentalists do not have that um, black and white attitude toward the LDS Church. They believe um, that it has strayed and that it has made many mistakes, but that there is still truth there, that, that, the, that ordinances performed in the LDS Church are valid in God's sight, but they also believe that their ordinances, uh, through 
fundamentalist priesthood authority are, are true and that they're maintaining the highest order of the kingdom, which is plural marriage. You know, it depends on who you talk to within the fundamentalist movement. Right, and we've been we've been really trying to to show that you know talking interviewing to all the different group leaders or members of the group that have either left or that are still current. It is very diverse, and there is a I think in some ways more nuance than there is in the LDS movement as far as leadership goes. It depends on group to group. But I want to I want to move up into Heber J Grant because as you mentioned, fundamentalists are not a fan of him, but. I want to talk about the distancing itself because Heber J. Grant lived for a time, a very short period, a plural marriage. So he was, he wasn't living it when he was a president of the church, of course, but talk about this distancing because of course Heber J. Grant takes over and the church says we're done with polygamy, but it is such an inherent part of LDS theology and doctrine and culture. How do we distance ourselves at this point? Hebrew J. Grant as an apostle is different from Hebrew J. Grant as president of the church. Hebrew J. Grant as an apostle up until 1906 believed that it was possible to marry uh, a wife with authority after uh, the manifesto. He was, uh, he was torn between the public denials and the private permission that he became aware of. And he even, by instructions of a senior member of the Quorum of the Twelve, John Henry Smith, performed two plural marriages in Mexico in 1897. And he did it reluctantly, and he protested against doing it, but he was a junior apostle, and his senior in the Quorum of the Twelve told him to do it, and he did it. But he did it reluctantly. And then, on, on top of that, by 1899, his only surviving son dies. And his wives are in their 40s. His plural wives are in their 40s. And he does not have a son to carry on his name. And he is desperate to have a son to carry on his name. And his wife, Emily is pregnant, and she bears another daughter. And he is devastated, because he's been promised by blessings given to him by presidents of the church and senior apostles that he would have sons to carry his name. And uh, his, his I, I can't call any of his wives his favorite, but Augusta, who became his wife, uh, uh, only wife, while he was president of the church, she was not able to have uh, very many children. I think she only had two. But uh, she had a difficulty in conceiving and bearing children. And so when Emily, Emily Wells Grant, bore her last child, and it was a daughter, and she was about 42 when she bore her last child. He knew that was the end of the road. And yet he was still being promised by senior apostles, you will live to have sons. 
And he asked God, and he asked himself, how can, how can that be? I mean, his wives were like Sarah. And, uh, and they were too old to conceive. And so, because of his faith and these blessings, he, and because he knew there were exceptions being made, including the two that he had performed in Mexico, he, uh, as a very shy man, began looking for a new plural wife as an apostle. But he was very shy. And every time he found somebody who he thought he was interested in, they either turned him down or he got called on a mission, as he did in in 1901. And he was, um, at that time, romancing a woman who married while he was in Japan on his mission. And she married uh, an Aztec president in plural marriage. And, and Matthias Cowley performed that marriage. And when uh, Heber Campbell, I mean Heber Grant got word of this, that Fanny Woolley had married uh, Aztec President George C. Parkinson, he was absolutely devastated. And Cowley said to him, well, if you find another woman, I'll, I'll marry you to her. I'll perform the marriage for you. And Heber, in his shy way, made contacts through fathers, asking them for permission to, to marry. And he was doing this down to 1903, down to the fall of 1903. And uh, he got turned down from one father after another. And ironically, the wives, the women that he was asking these fathers to, for permission to propose to, were being courted polygamously by apostles. And that's why the fathers turned him down. And so then he went on a second mission and went to England in November 1903, hoping, but not able, to marry again. And while he's in England and uh, on his mission, the second manifesto is given. And while he's still there, two apostles, including Cowley, who had promised him that he would be able to perform his marriage, are dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve. And that just devastates Hebrew J. Grant. And he writes when he learns that they've submitted uh, um, resignations, he writes to... Uh, President Kimball, I mean President, excuse me, Joseph F. Smith, and says to him, release, drop, read Smoot from the Quorum of the Twelve. Don't drop them. Don't drop these men who have lived the, the and been, you know, preserving the, the, uh, principle of plural marriage, uh, because they've done what I would have done. In marrying pluralized after the manifesto, if I if I'd not been prevented by circumstance, and he writes this, and uh, but once they're dropped in April uh, 1906, it's like J. Grant flipped a switch in his mental circuit, and he could not believe that. 
Joseph F. Smith had been lying all those times he denied to the Quorum of the Twelve that plural marriage was possible. And to continue to defend John W. Taylor and Matthias of Cali was to uh, secretly, if not specifically, admit that Joseph F. Smith had been lying to the Quorum of the Twelve and lying on the witness stand in Washington, D.C., and lying in the Second Manifesto and lying when he gave the reasons why Joseph or why John W. Taylor and Matthias of Cali were dropped. And so Heber J. Grant, by the end of April, told the former president of the uh, Salt Lake State, Angus M. Cannon, who was visiting uh, England at the time and, and met with with uh, Heber J. Grant, who was mission president there, at the end of, of April 1906. And, here, and uh, President Cannon said, it is such a sad thing that these two apostles have been dropped from the Twelve. And Heber J. Grant snapped, they deserved it, and they deserved it earlier, you know, long before now, and they should have gotten, they should have been dropped long before then. And he, and, um, and this is in Cannon's diary. He was the president of the stake of Salt Lake Stake from 1876 up until 1904. He had three sons who married in Salt Lake City, plural wives, after the manifesto. He had nephews who had done so, and had done so with the approval of Angus Cannon's own brother, George Q. Cannon. And when Angus Cannon heard Keeper J. Grant say that, he said, I'm like a man who's got a mouthful of mutton and is being accused of stealing a sheep. I can't say anything. I know too much to, to give an answer to what you just said. And from that point forward, from April 1906 forward, Heber J. Grant was of one mind, whereas up in, from 1890 to 1906, he'd been of two minds, bouncing back and forth. Is it approved? Isn't it approved? Should I stop living uh, with my wives or shouldn't I? Should I continue having children with them or shouldn't I? And from 1906 onward, uh, it was a clear mental choice for him that everyone who claimed that there were authorized plural marriages after 1890 was wrong. And it required him to erase, at least from what he admitted, his own performance of two plural marriages at the request, at the requirement of a senior member of the of the twelve. But in his own mind, he saw that as an error as well on the part of John Henry Smith. And yet he was willing to believe 
that Joseph F. Smith, and in fact, I think he found it necessary to believe that Joseph F. Smith was always telling the truth when he denied in meetings in the temple to the Quorum of the Twelve that he had ever authorized plural marriages, when he denied on the witness stand that he had done so. Heber J. Grant was willing mentally to admit that Wolford would have approved some exceptions. Lorenzo Snow had improved, approved some exceptions, including giving temporary permission to Heber J. Grant to marry a new wife. John Henry Smith had made a, a couple, some exceptions, but he, when I say he, Heber, was adamant that Joseph F. Smith never lied, that Joseph F. Smith never authorized plural marriage, and he was em emphatic in that, and no one could convince him otherwise. And so from 1906 onward, it, like I say, it's as though he had flipped a switch in his mental circuit. He, he simply could not acknowledge that any, time, any marriage after 1901 was authorized, after, uh, after Joseph F. Smith became president of the church. And so, despite the fact that he couldn't bring himself to admit that Joseph F. Smith publicly spoke contrary to the reality, he was, in a sense, walking with one shoe on and one shoe off because his beloved first cousin, Anthony W. Ivans, had continued to perform plural marriages in Mexico up until April 1904. He knew that. Um, and so, even though he had flipped the switch, it, you know, it, it could only cover so much. And, and, uh, any, contradiction to that he just mentally would not absorb well i want to i want to move to george albert smith george albert smith was the he was defensive of matthias f Cowley and and john w taylor up until 1906 and then he flipped the switch, and I don't know that he had any direct knowledge that his own father, John Henry Smith, had authorized plural marriage. <laughs> but he also, like um, Heber J. Grant, found it difficult, if not impossible, to believe that Joseph F. Smith had solemnly lied uh, eyeball to eyeball to members of the Quorum of the Twelve in the Temple when he said that there he had never authorized a plural marriage after the manifesto. And so uh, George Albert Smith, um, although he was not as adamant as Heber J. Grant, he was a, a gentler soul, uh, a more compassionate individual. Uh, but Heber J. Grant became like Flint, about this issue. And uh, so as president of the church, after fighting as an apostle against new plural marriages from 1906 onward, after he flipped that switch in his, in his brain 
and and denouncing uh, John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley and anybody else who was speaking in favor of plural marriage after 1906. Uh, you know, for uh, that period of time, 12 years, he becomes then president of the church in November 1918. And he his mental circuits are set in granite. And his spiritual commitment is set in granite. Uh, that any plural marriage after Joseph F. Smith became president of the church, Joseph F. Smith did not authorize. Can I ask you a really controversial question? Yeah. Okay, so this is really controversial, but there are rumors that Heber J. Grant was a gay man. And I, I, you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, but... And oh, I'm no. Wondering... <laughs> no. No, no. No. Okay. Well, good. Then that would that would cancel out my question. I just wondered if that. Uh... No. Okay. No, I've I've read his diaries, and of course, not everyone acknowledges their sexuality in a diary. I did not acknowledge mine in the diaries I kept. So I mean, you know, th- that is a possibility that one could have concealed that forever. But in terms of how he described his attitudes towards sexual behavior, he was as Puritan as you could get, as Victorian in his attitudes. He was a Victorian monogamist. And <laughs> his his attitudes toward morality and, and celibacy and devotion uh, to one's wife, and of course he had these promises to two wives, and uh, who were polygamous wives, um, in addition to his legal wife, Lucy Stringham, who was his first and legal wife, but he, no, um, I, I just cannot take seriously any suggestion that Hubert J. Grant uh, had homosexual <laughs> desires. And this is from a gay man who defined, I defined myself as homosexual when I was 12 because right. I finally learned the word. What it meant, and, and you've literally written the book on uh, homosexuality in the church history. So, <laughs> so I have another another sort of controversial question. Uh, do you see any policies from Heber J. Grant on where church leaders might have overcorrected in their denial of polygamy or their distancing themselves from polygamy? To oh, I think to, they clearly did. Okay, can you give me some examples of maybe how it filtered into doctrine or policy? Well, just the excommunications themselves. When when the the first presidency started excommunicating well-known devout Mormons in eight in 1909, and Heber J. Grant was on a special committee to investigate those rumors and and was involved in that. The church attorneys said, do not do this. They advised the president of the church, Joseph F. Smith, do not excommunicate loyal members of the church for entering into plural marriage, because this will turn the church against itself, which was a prophecy that came true. But Joseph F. Smith, again, to maintain consistency, since Excommunication for plural marriage had been threatened by the first presidency ever since, publicly, ever since 1891, when 
Wilfred Woodruff was president of the church and said that if you violate the manifesto, you uh, are subject to possible excommunication. And all of those statements under oath on the witness stand by Wilfred Woodruff and his counselors, George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith and the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, all of whom said that excommunication was a possibility, um, despite that fact, when, when they started doing that, seriously, in 1909, the church attorney said, this is terrible, please don't. But, in order to be consistent, Joseph F. Smith authorized the investigation and excommunication of recent plural uh, marriages. And uh, so, yeah, that's the first that's the first example where devout members of the church who were themselves monogamists thought the uh, the church was going too far in its campaign against new plural marriage. The excommunications that began in 1909, con- despite counsel not to do that from the church's attorneys. Um, then the the um, equation that, by again consistency, that uh, on the witness stand. James E. Talmadge did in Washington, D.C. when he, by um, the logic of the questioning, he was forced to say that anyone who entered into plural marriage after 1890 was committing adultery. And that became the claim of the church leadership and seminary teachers and institute teachers uh, increasingly from 18, uh, pardon me, from 1910 onward. And especially when they were faced with the fundamentalist revolt, then they said, you are adulterers. You are not living, and they, they used the term so-called plural marriage, because the only plural marriage that was a real plural marriage was a plural marriage that was authorized by the president of the church. Of course, this put all Muslims in an awkward situation uh, in the eyes of the leadership of the church. Uh, but that nonetheless was the position that the presidency took under Joseph, um, pardon me, under uh, Heber J. Grant. They used the phrase, and it became the catchphrase, so-called plural marriage. I don't think that phrase was ever used before Joseph F. Smith died. He, he was done authorized marriages, and they were he under his in, uh, instructions. They were excommunicating people, but that became the catchphrase for post-manifesto plural marriage under Hebrew J. Grant, so-called plural marriages, and uh, and that really became the official position of the church up until the position statements that were. Uh, put on the church's website a year ago. And I'd say that's overboard. Um, but, Absolutely. you know, the leaders of the church did not. They defined it as adultery. And, and yet they applied it retroactively to anybody prior to the fundamentalists. And so I had uh, 
people brokenhearted and some outraged yelling at the top of their lungs that their seminary teachers were lying to them when they said their grandfathers had committed adultery for marrying a plural wife after the manifesto. Wow. So I, I've heard, um, I, I've come to believe that the church is more concerned with, um, you know, I, when I read your book for the first time, I thought, oh my goodness, the church has been hiding all this stuff from me. They've been lying. And then over time, after doing a lot more research, I've sort of come to believe that the reason why the church doesn't talk a lot about some of these hard things is A, they didn't know a lot of it for a long time, but B, because if they talk about some of these deep doctrinal writings from the late 19th century and early 20th century, that it causes people to become polygamous. I'm thinking of the Lafferty brothers, right, who start diving into this stuff. Or they worry that people will doubt the leadership of the church. And, And the problem is the problem of duplicity. And in many ways, 1890 to 1904 is a mirror image in reverse of 1830 to 1844. It's the double messages, the solemn declarations of denial um, made to those who are opposed to plural marriage. Of course we don't authorize plural marriage. Uh, whether it's Joseph F. Smith or Joseph Smith Jr., the situation is the same. Well, and you could argue even with modern things like Proposition 8, the church was adamantly denying involvement until the press, you know, did some research and found. So I, I have kind of said it's a Mormon tradition. Found. That's true. And yeah. plausible denial is the term that is used. In, uh, well, it actually, in diplomacy, it's, it, it's a harder, harsher term. Uh, in diplomacy, uh, diplomatic historians have used the phrase for centuries, the diplomatic lie. That you tell what is necessary, you absolutely will lie through your teeth for the benefit of your country. Diplomatic lie. Well, in American political framework, that was softened because of the political framework to plausible denial. That's a 20th century, late 20th century phrase. But it describes the, the same kind of, of mental process that you are defending an institution at all costs. And if that cost means that you violate your personal ethics, by telling what you know to be a lie, you're doing it for a higher purpose. And in diplomacy, that higher purpose is to avoid war, or to win a war, or to uh, to prevent, you know, to protect your king. In the American political system, it's to avoid embarrassing your president or your government, or your CIA, or your FBI, or, you know, name down, and it goes down to governors and their spokespeople, 
and to mayors and their spokespeople and to police departments and their spokespeople. Institutionalized church... protect the institution are pervasive and they always have been. Do you think if the church was never a polygamous church, that perhaps this tradition of duplicity would not exist as strong as it does in the LDS? I, oh, I'm certain of it. I'm certain of it. There's no question in my mind that the, the duplicity uh, that was required from the mid-1830s to 1844 created a, a, a double definition of truth and a double definition of, of being honorable. And we call those things sacred. And, and we call that sacred because it is a part of our sacred history. It's like Peter Paul, or not Peter Paul, excuse me, Peter, James, and John went to the Mount of Transfiguration, as it later was called, with Jesus. And while Jesus was on the Mount, Peter, James, and John saw him conversing with two glorious beings. And Jesus told them it was Moses and Elias, or Elijah, depending on how you translate the Greek. But Then he said to Peter, James, and John, Tell no man until I have risen. Well, if one of the other apostles had said, What happened up on that mountain? What did that commandment from the Savior put Peter, James, and John in? Nothing happened there unusual. That's a lie. Or if the rumor had some been, been circulated, and say the Apostle M Matthew said to one of the original twelve, said to Peter or James or John, I heard that that Jesus has seen Moses in glory and that you were there. And Peter, James, and John were under obligation, sacred obligation by uh, Jesus to tell no man. And so the only answer they could have given was, you're wrong. And if anybody says that Jesus saw Moses or Elijah, they lie. Well, guess what? Joseph F. Smith gave that same exact example to explain why there were the double messages and official denials being given of plural marriage in Nauvoo. Gave that explanation in the 1880s. It was also published as an editorial in the, uh, in the Desert News. What, what choice would Peter, James, and John have if somebody came to them and said, did you see such and such on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration? And Joseph F. Smith and the editorial in the Desert News said, they would have had no choice but to deny eye to eye that any such 
thing had occurred because they had received a divine, a divine command to tell no man. I called it theocratic ethics. And I think, yeah, that, I, you know, that's a neutral term. Lying for the Lord is a really pejorative term. It's a very common right. term. But I, I, I prefer using the term theocratic ethics because it, it first of all, it, it covers far more than simply saying something that's contrary to what you know to be true. It includes living polygamy in violation of the law, etc. But it also is non-pejorative. And it, and I think it describes that reality. It describes the reality that Peter, James, and John would have been in had somebody asked them a direct question about Moses and Elijah, or Moses and Elijah, or Elias. And describes the situation in Nauvoo with polygamy, and it describes the situation after the manifesto. And so I, and it also describes protecting the institution when embarrassing disclosures are made about Prop 10 or whatever. The problem with that reasoning, though, is it also justifies, you know, Verlin LeBaron or, I mean, sorry, Ervil, Ervil LeBaron or... Um, oh, I know, Ervil LeBaron, um, I know, I know, you can take, I mean, there was in the 1980s, or no, I think it was in the 1970s, a seminary teacher in Ogden who slit his son's throat because he said God had commanded him to do that. Mormon doctrine is heady stuff. Yeah. When you deal with theocratic yeah. ethics, anything is possible. How do, you, how do you distinguish between Joseph Smith was right in plural marriage and um, the fundamentalists are wrong? in plural marriage, when they claim the same theocratic ethics in doing it? And how do you justify Nephi, uh, you know, slitting the throat of a drunk man who is uh, totally defenseless and stealing from him, and somebody else doing it uh as Ervil LeBaron did with the LeBaron uh, murders, commanding or, or revelation to kill people. What's the difference? The difference right. is a matter of faith, and also the difference in terms of your faith of what is reality. And for a person of my faith, Nephi, and his and, and his slitting the throat of of Laban, that was commanded and that was righteous. Whereas my faith tells me that Ervil LeBaron was a delusional murderer, or at least a commander of murder. But that's a, that's a position of faith. And it's the same position of faith if you take the Bible literally. When the, uh, when the Israelites entered Canaan and attacked one Canaanite city after another, after they crossed the Jordan River, and they and they were commanded, according to the uh, oh, the Hebrew Bible, to kill every man, woman, and child, and they did. Even babies in cribs. Well, how is that different 
from Uganda. Yeah, it's it's something that I think every Mormon has to wrestle with, and and that I hope every Mormon wrestles with. Every every every, Mormon every person in the Judeo-Christian background, if you accept the Hebrew Bible, particularly Christian fundamentalists who see the Hebrew Bible as as uh, absolute fact, then. Then you've you've accepted slaughtering babies in their cribs because they don't happen to be your faith. Yeah. So I mean, okay. this is uh, antinomianism, which is the the general generic term for this, in which is a, a claim that there are no laws. Um, religious antinomianism is very dangerous. Because whether it's uh, Manson and his cult, or it's Irva LeBaron, or it's uh, the uh, ISIS beheading Christians in Egypt and beheading Shiite uh, Shia Muslims in uh, in uh, Syria because they're not real Muslims and therefore they deserve to die? Where do you draw the line? Whose God, you know, whose murderous God is the true God? Right. And, shame, you know, and that's why some become absolute atheists. I am not one of them. But I have to acknowledge this is a deep Problem. Come to Sunstone this year because I'm doing a panel. I'm hosting a panel on the fundamentalist Mormon mind. I'm not referring to Mormon fundamentalists. I'm referring to this problem that we're talking about, which is this extremism that causes people to harm in God's name, which I think is separate than Mormon fundamentalists, right? Oh yeah, it's a larger issue. It's it's an issue why I mean you you have uh, Christians who slaughtered. Uh, pagans who wouldn't convert in the, in the early decades of the of the third uh, century when Christian Christianity became the religion of, of Rome, the fourth century rather, uh, when it became the religion of Rome, and from that point forward, uh, slaughtering in the name of God was was standard practice, whether it was Christian slaughtering pagans. Or Muslims slaughtering uh, pagans, or Muslims slaughtering Christians, or Christians having crusades into Palestine and slaughtering every um, Muslim who wouldn't convert to Christianity, or Catholics slaughtering Protestants, or Protestants when they gained control slaughtering Catholics, which they did, and it wasn't. Oftentimes, it wasn't as simple as a, as a sword thrust. They, they were burning them at the stake. And it depended on who was in control. In England, Catholic, uh, uh, the Catholic Queen Mary burned, uh, burned Protestants at the stake. And under King Henry and under Queen Elizabeth, Protestant, uh, monarchs, Catholics burned at the stake. We sure like to make God in our image, don't we? We do. And and we, we define the other as dangerous. And when you have a religious commitment that doesn't allow for pluralism, then you can cr- 
crossed the line into regarding the other religious people as expendable and that you're even doing God's service in destroying them. And that's why um, I cannot believe in non, non-pluralistic religion. Uh, in my view, Christ taught a pluralistic religion. He did not teach a religion of banishing or killing the unbeliever. But um, unfortunately, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, Hindus, Muslims, and even people who are animists, who don't believe in, in anything except that God is in everything, have felt justified in slaughtering people who disagreed. Um, so I think the answer is to accept the fact that God loves all people. And even if we regard some people as religiously wrong, as, uh, as fighting against God's truth, that they still deserve the freedom to practice as they as they choose. And yeah, uh, so I, I you know I'm in favor of pluralism. And unfortunately most religions are not. Well before I let you go, can I ask you one more question? Do you have sure. time for one more question? Sure. Do you see polygamy sort of bleeding into any of the modern policies or practices today. Like I, I argue that polygamy is a works doctrine. And so that is why the LDS church is so obsessed with works. And I can see it bleeding into sort of the way the rhetoric we teach women about perfection because it's all works, right? This is something you do to sacrifice. Well, we, we, to sacrifice. polygamy is still a practice of, of uh, the church and the temples. When a man, uh, becomes a widower, he is, uh, without question, sealed to an, uh, to his next wife. And that has happened to several presidents of the church in our, in our own lifetimes. Joseph Fielding Smith was sealed in sequence to one wife after another in the temple. And according to his faith and according to Mormon faith and teachings, officially, those all will be his wives in the eternities, if they're all exalted. That's plural marriage. And Howard W. Hunter was a widower and married again. And uh, this has been, you know, a pattern. And so uh, plural marriage is, is still a part of Mormon practice. It's just that it isn't the here and now involving sexual conduct here on earth. But in Mormon theology, plural marriage is fundamentally true and is fundamentally practiced. And the irony in, in saying that is intentional. The, the temples perform <laughs> Do you ever think- plural marriages, but they are for eternity. Do you ever think the church could or will repudiate it? I'll, I'll repudiate it? No. I hope they authorize it in countries where it's illegal. I think one of the greatest travesties 
of the post-1978 church is that it gave black Africans priesthood, but then required African men to abandon their wives and make their previously legitimate children into illegitimate children as a price for becoming a Mormon. In my view, that is a sin that has been administered and required by the First Presidency of the Church since 1978. And it's most prominent in black Africa, but it would, it would apply elsewhere where polygamy is legal. That's fascinating. Well, I, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed this conversation, and it has been one of the highlights of this entire series. So, well, I, I run, I have the, the pattern of running off at the mouth, and I'm, I, I <laughs> could have apologized in advance, but now apologize after the fact. You don't need to, I could have let, I could let you talk all evening and load you up on Diet Coke, but <laughs> I, it was, it was pure joy. And, um, is there any projects or anything, any way that our listeners can support you? Oh, well, I, I have a book that's coming out. Signature uh, on its current uh, catalog says that my third volume of the Mormon Hierarchy will be out in February or by February. And it uh, analyzes uh, LD, the LDS Church's finances and business from 1830 to 2010. I'm so excited. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And... Um... Again, everyone go out and buy all of, um, <laughs> of Michael Quinn's books. You're, you're really a gift, a gift to not just Mormon history, but to my generation and generations to come. And I mean that so very sincerely. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, and, and it's been good talking with you and my voice has held out and that's always yeah. a, a plus. Thank you. 